Hey everybody, welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsuchu. This is episode number 112. I'm Gabe Essel and I'm here with my co-hosts Jonathan Getz and Dennis Levi Leach. How's it going, guys? Thanks, ten, buddy. Fantastic. Good deal. Good deal. Well, happy summer to you. Um, gosh, this this podcast has turned in almost to a quarterly show at this point. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, but, we're, an, uh, we're, we're, a, we're an industry magazine now. That's right. Yeah, it's like an <laughs> academic journal over here. Um, but anyway, good to see you guys again. And um, it's good to be back. Hope everybody's summer is going, uh, is going well, as well as, um, you know, abnormal summer during a pandemic can go. But um, tonight, uh, I'm excited about this. We've done some of these episodes in the past, and we are uh, doing tonight a field guide uh, where we take a city and we profile the baseball team or teams, in this case, in the area, as well as um, some musical highlights from that region. So we're excited about that. Tonight is a field guide to the Bay Area. So we're going to be talking about the Giants, the A's, and all of the great music uh, that's come from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, the Gold Rush brought legions of prospectors to the Bay Area nearly 175 years ago. Since then, the region has given us full house, cut it out, um, expensive real estate, and more iPhone apps than we could ever need. However, it has produced some great baseball and a fantastic music scene that transcends the flower power of Haight-Ashbury. In this episode, we're going to take you beyond the late 60s and into the heart of the Bay Area's diverse musical landscape. And then we'll round the bases with two of baseball's more successful franchises, the Oakland Athletics and the San Francisco Giants. So take a journey, if you will, with us as we share the best of the Bay from funk to punk, metal to hip hop, and Vita Blue to Will the Thrill. This is episode 112, A Field Guide to the Bay. All right, guys. Well, let's go ahead and start it off with baseball. Two um, now historic teams um, that uh, emerged in, I guess it'd be the, the latter half of the 20th century is when the A's and the Giants really kind of got going in the Bay Area. Um, they are teams that migrated from other parts of the country. So they are essentially relocated franchises. Um, so, you know, there's been a baseball rivalry both on the field and off. Um, this, these teams even met up in a historic World Series in 1989, which we covered in our 1989 episode. Uh, a devastating earthquake produced a World Series like no other, where the A's were victorious over the Giants. We're going to talk about that. Um, so, guys, um, let me ask you both this. Um, who or what do each of you think of when I say Oakland Athletics or I say San Francisco Giants? What's the first thing that comes to mind for you guys when you think of those franchises? Uh, 1987 Tops. Okay. Will, Will Clark, 1987 Tops. Right. And, yeah. um, and, my, and my first uh, expensive uh, card, which was a Jose Canseco Fleer rookie with Eric Plunk. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, the, the dual dual rookie card. Um, right. Yeah, the, those two. I mean, ma- well, Canseco was a masher. Uh, uh, Will, Will Clark was, uh, he, he was just handsome on a baseball card. <laughs> was that a, the 87 Will Clark, is that an all-star rookie card? 
Um, no, I think it's just a standard. No, no yeah. it's just standard. Yeah, um, McGuire um, from that year is an All Star rookie. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, eighty-seven tops. You know those the the McGuire and Conseco cards from from that set are pretty iconic because they had the solid green unis on in those. And uh, yeah, are those like batting practice jerseys or spring training, spring, yeah. batting practice or spring training. I'm guessing. Right? Yeah, yeah, they're good looking unis. And um, you know, one of the other things is I immediately go to the original. 86 tops Maguire Olympic card for some reason when I, when I think of oh, Oakland yeah. and, and in baseball, but um, cause that was like a coveted card for sure. Back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I, when I think of um, the A's and the giants um, with the A's, I always go back to the 1989 team. I would say that was probably the only time, like I, I veered off the white Sox path. You know, um, the White Sox were really shitty in 1989. Um, those are our, you know, Ivan Calderon years, um, with all due respect to him. He was a bright spot. But um, I remember buying, I had a, one of the mesh Oakland A's hats in 1989. I remember my grandfather looking at me kind of with some menace, you know, as, <laughs> as, as, as sweet of a guy as he was. You know, he probably wasn't totally pissed, but he, he looked at me with um, at least – I think a, a little bit of scorn when I walked into his house with an A's hat on in 1989, because like every other kid, well, a, my team at the time sucked B, you know, I got swept up in the Conseco madness, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not yep. alone there starting lineups were coming out. Like Levi mentioned the baseball cards were hot. Um, he was, you know, for, for about two, three years there, man, that guy, he was the guy. You know, I mean, just yeah. dating Madonna, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's in pop culture. Looking, yeah. 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 Pop culture. He's a pop culture figure, you know, yeah. um, him and Bo Jackson, probably like the two guys of the baseball era that almost transcended baseball yeah. at that time. Um, so I, I, I think of the 89 team. I also think of white cleats when I think of the A's um, and uh, with, with the giants, you know, I, I, I guess, well, the, I, I guess I think of the ballpark um, because they're just, you know, anymore. There's not a lot of ballparks on the water, for one. So um, Oracle? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, it, yeah, Oracle. Um, I got the chance to go there when it was called something else. Pac Bell, maybe? Pac Bell, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I went there in 2001. Um, a year after it opened, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, and it was really nice. I um, I have not been to the A's stadium. I've driven by it because it's by the airport. It looks, not many. It looks, it looks like a total shithole. Um, <laughs> and um, but the, the Giants one was really nice. Um, you know, even twenty years on now, it's 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 still uh, looks like it's still in pretty good shape. It was it was. I, I remember I had an upper deck ticket, um, but I remember the sight lines being pretty good from even, you know, buying one of the cheapest tickets I could at the gate that day. Um, you know, and a view like, of the bay. Yeah, yeah, my ticket was like $14, you know. Yeah, nice. Um, oh. And uh, it was it, it was a good experience. Yeah, it was, it was it, it definitely a good place to see a baseball game. So uh, definitely a contrast in stadiums. Granted, I haven't been to the Oakland one, and I'm sure it probably has its charms. Um, that you have to, you know, you have to be a fan to appreciate probably, but um, it's also guys, the Oakland stadium, 
up until the what the Raiders moved what two years ago maybe year ago yeah. Right? yeah yeah it was it was really for a while there the the last stadium that was dual purpose for baseball and football uh, yeah whereas you know when the three of us were growing up and collecting cards in the 80s that was pretty common you know like St. Louis had that Cincinnati had that Pittsburgh had that you know and it's um, funny when um when you see when I think of the idea of a football game um and and the runner like running over where second base should be like you see <laughs> you know there's you see the infield dirt there yeah. um like that reminds that that like instantly I can tell you oh it's September right cuz that's right. that only happens in September yeah. um yeah. Uh, and uh, it's a very distinct and unique feeling that I guess is 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 going away and and, and, San, and and the Giants had it too. Or, um, before Pac Bell was built, you know, Candlestick was shared by, by the right, Giants. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, they've the stadiums have those um, you know serving both sports um, to them. So uh, they've got that um, unique aspect. Um, any any other kind of you know yeah, yeah, when I when I when I, I 1989 is 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 big. Um, like I said, I'm not going to go into all those details because we covered that in a previous episode. But you know, 1989, it, the A's team. Um, I, I I don't know if it like what team of my childhood of the 80s has like the best war or anything like that. But if if just like on the spot, you told me like what team do you want if you've just got to you know mow somebody down? I'm taking them, man. I'm taking like the 88 to 1990 A's, which. You know, I don't think the lineup fluctuated all that much between those three years. Even um, though they were, even though they were, uh, what, a four and they were four and nine in the World Series over those three years. Maybe they didn't always play well <laughs> under pressure because I would think no, that five, they five and eight. They were five and right. Yeah, yeah. They they and the Reds swept them if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, ninety Jose Rio. Look out. Right. So. Uh, yeah. Okay. You bring up some good points there, but um, God, man, that was just, that was, that was an all-star team. But, I, was, I was so envious as a White Sox fan, you know, being in the cellar at the time of the talent on that team. I, I think the 1972 to 74 A's would have something to say about that as they okay. won, as they won three world they series three in a row, rather yeah. than just, uh, although they went seven in, in two of those series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Go to baseball reference, throw those uh, figures in Excel and 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 see how the 72 to 74 A's match up against the 88 to 98. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I did uh, I did download a couple Excel sheets here. All and, right. And, and, it, and it doesn't have to do with the, the wins and losses. It, it, it actually um, for those years comparing those teams, I was interested in what happens post 1991 and later for both of these franchises mm-hmm. and um being that okay we're past the 89 world series the, the a's fa- dynasty that almost was has fallen yeah and um uh then uh there's kind of this uh this dip for for both teams and but overall the the, the franchise both franchises have been pretty successful obviously mm-hmm. uh, the, the giants and um uh, so it's interesting to compare their success with their attendance success. And so since 1991, the A's have had 2,495 wins compared to the Giants' 2,477 wins. Um, however, the, and the A's have had 12 playoff appearances with zero World Series appearances, obviously. 
Um, uh, the Giants have had eight playoff appearances with four World Series appearances and three titles. Three titles. Yeah. And so what all that boils down to is um, uh, since 1991, the uh, Oakland A's have had a combined attendance of about 50 million, whereas the uh, Giants have a com- had a combined attendance uh, of about 80 million <laughs> and 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 obviously it helps when pac bell now oracle opened in in the year 2000 and since the year 2000 um which it's hard to say not in conan o'brien's song um uh the the giants have dipped below the three million mark just once for a, a, a season's attendance in contrast the a's and oakland coliseum have never been above 2.2 million. Um, And so that just goes to show this dichotomy of while both have been successful and while the A's haven't been quite over the hump to make the World Series, um, uh, let alone win it, uh, it's it's just, it's this huge revenue disparity uh, Uh between the two teams because uh, the well, the Giants have thirty more uh, have garnered thirty more million in attendance over that time span. Well, yeah, and I would have never guessed they were that close in wins. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost yeah. essentially identical yeah. for all intents and purposes. Yeah, wins. right. They just A's can't win when it counts in the playoffs. <laughs> well, I mean, the I, I think the recent years have shown that Moneyball is um, is um, isn't enough. Yeah, you why know, doesn't Billy it, Bean shit work in the playoffs? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why does it yeah. work? Yeah, well, I mean, it's because you, it's a smaller sample size. You know, anybody. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's um, over the span of a season. Yeah, you trust Billy Bean and 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 to to you know get a winning team out there. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it, uh, a best of five, best of seven. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're always they're always in it. You know, they're 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 essentially. You know, they remind me of the the Rays. Remind me of the A's now too. You know, I mean, they're sure. they're kind of similar. Sure. They're like very always, economical. Always, yeah, economical, always competitive. But yet, I I can't name anybody on the team any year. There might be a couple know. years where they finish last, but then they'll yeah. they'll follow that up by winning the division two years in a row. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. so. Yeah, you know, and and you've you've got. I, gosh, I, I don't have data in front of me, so I'm I'm speaking um, maybe a little bit ignorantly here, but. Um, probably some some economic differences you know among among the um the areas and the fan bases now granted the whole bay area is kind of gentrified and expensive now you know even Mm -hmm. Oakland Mm -hmm. um so maybe this has changed but it, it like when we were growing up at least and then up until probably just a few years ago it was always you know Oakland was more working class um and you know san francisco was was more high income and then you know all mm-hmm. tech tech and finance jobs um so you know some of that maybe maybe plays out as well um i do know gets as well to maybe affect attendance in 2006 because attendance was so shitty always and it looked bad on tv when you had all those empty seats the a's put the tarp on the upper deck Yep. Yep. Which, and I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that, but, and I looked at their capacity, their capacity is still more with the tarp than, than, uh, the than giant stadium, the giant stadium. Okay. Yeah. It is a football stadium. So yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Right. Right. Um, uh, yeah, that, uh, 
uh, Giants Stadium is has fluctuated between forty thousand and forty one nine. Uh, Oakland Coliseum uh, is forty six uh, with it uh, with it being tarped and fifty about fifty six uh, without it being tarped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're always on the cusp of leaving too. You know, I mean, I feel like for the last twenty years, it's been like where are they going to relocate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and it's funny because early. So the Giants came in with 68 and uh, Giants uh, were 58. 58. Thank you, Levi. Yeah, Yeah, Uh, Mays would have played in New York and San Francisco. Yeah, the Dodgers and the uh, Giants both left New York, kind of gutted New York in 1958. And got the Mets 10 years later. Yeah, Yeah. both both headed west. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the A's moved from Kansas City to Oakland in 68. You stole Reggie from us. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. Two, two, two <laughs> great players, are, you know, um, you know, are, you know, you could even argue the best of the franchises, you know, if you right. are arguably, but maybe not in the May's case, but you know, both of those guys, I think Reggie played a year in Kansas city a year. Or two. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, 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 Levi, do you, do you know where the, uh, uh, the ace elephant came from? Yeah, the story on that is um, like the manager of the A's and the manager of the uh, Giants were like rivals. And um, I think it was in the 1920s or 30s. The uh, the A's had started going around buying up contracts of all the bigger, better players at that time. And so the Giants manager said that in effect to the A's, it was – the A's were a big white elephant, which was a term for like something that's like costly and is too hard to take care of. And, you know, right. those kind of uh, euphemisms. And so the, the ownership of the A's and the manager like cl- clinged on to that and we're like, okay, that'll be our logo. <laughs> and so that's how the white elephant thing came about. And, um, when they moved to Oakland, Oakland, or uh, when they were in what? Yeah, when they w- were in Kansas City, they kind of eventually started to phase that out because Kansas City was a super democratic town. And so they phased out the elephant and started, um, they even had a donkey logo for a little uh-huh. while, you can find. <laughs> And so when the team moved to Oakland after the uh, ownership changed over once in Oakland, they started to kind of bring back the white elephant. So you would see it again on merch and stuff, but yeah, it's kind of a neat little story. Hmm. Yeah. I always kind of wondered where the elephant came from (laughs) and what the never bothered to to look it up, but uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because when the when the Giants showed up in uh, in '58, um, they were immediately like bitching about how oh, we need a new stadium, and that and all the way like through the '60s and the '70s, and and then they find and then they built Candlestick, um, and uh, uh, and then they they hated Candlestick because it was uh, poorly located, and you know and and the the giants wanted to move were were originally like the A's and that they were threatening to move. They wanted to move to Toronto in the seventies and Tampa in the nineties. And, and uh, they, uh, I think the mayor put the squad douche on the, the move to Toronto and then MLB owners put the squad douche on Tampa. 
And, um, and even the A's, uh, were considering moving, uh, just after their dynasty, they, they, they were gonna, uh, they were gonna move to Chicago if the White Sox were going to move out of town Uh in the late seventies. And, um, uh, and so this, this, this fight, this constant fight for a stadium is, has just been ever present in the Bay Uh area's uh relationship with major league baseball and and you know anybody everybody knows how annoying that is to hear that you know harken all the time you know it, it seems it's it, and um and and it's and it's fascinating because uh in in the sense of of oakland and and san francisco's or i'm sorry the giants and the a's franchise relationships where they were, you know, they were um, uh, trying to be kind of symbiotic and understand that it's important to have both teams um, in the area. And but at the same time, the Bay Area is the smallest of the four major metropolitan areas to have two major league uh, baseball teams. And so there's um, definitely more limited resources there. And and um, uh, and if you ask an A's fan, you know, like, like, oh, how do you feel about the Giants? Um, uh, they are, even though the A's swept the giants and then have that kind of Trump card in their back pocket, whenever they want, um, in the 1989 world series, um, regardless that the giants have since won three, um, they, there is a sentiment there of, of being, uh, fairly angry at the giants because of the giants holding of these territorial rights, um, and so MLB rules will restrict the movement of any franchise into another's territory. And uh, these territorial rules are designed to protect each team's potential local revenue sources, as well as provide stability throughout the league. Yeah. And um, in 1990, Oakland gave their San Jose territorial rights to the Giants so that um, they could further their bid to find a new stadium because they thought it was in the best interest to keep the Giants in the Bay Area. Again, that symbiotic relationship. And so the hope was that the Giants would could more easily get a stadium approved via public vote with the move. But in this particular case, it wasn't successful. And, and the giants ultimately found other ways to get what we now call Oracle park. So, but fast forward through a giant's ownership change. And as part of the new ownership deal, the franchise um, still retain those rights given to them by, by Oakland. Um, and, and soon the A's were looking for a new stadium location. So they asked for the San Jose territorial territorial rights back, but the giants ownership, basically told him to stick it. And this prevented the A's from exploring relocated to San Jose several years ago. And here we are, the A's are still trying to get things sorted out. And uh, due to the Giants ownership insistence of no givebacks, um, uh, the uh, A's fans are, are just really, really salty. If, if you bring up right. the Giants and otherwise, you know, it's funny to think about um, a rival from a different league even though there's constant interleague play now, but um, it's uh, it's salty, uh, yeah, as salty as a, the Bay. There was a time when, you know, Oakland, Oakland Raiders, you know, they've moved to uh, Vegas now, but there was a time when the athletics were rumored to be going to Vegas. And there was actually mm-hmm. even supposedly right. a, a, a off-season spring training when the teams were coming back from spring training, which I believe was in Florida, were like they were literally like you know the semi drivers. It's like, do we? Are you going to turn off and go to Vegas? Or they talked about turning off and going to Denver. 
Because uh, that wow. was also wow. a rumored, a rumored town. So yeah, the A's have been been talking about moving for quite a while. I got to do some quick, I quick fact checked. I checked my notes. I was totally wrong on those dates. The the elephant logo came around in the early 1900s. It was like 1902, oh, wow. and that was when they were in Philly. So yeah. they were the Philly A's, then they were the Kansas City A's, mm-hmm. then they were the Oakland A's. So, okay. Yeah. 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 Nice. Um, with with the um, with with the, with the A's and the and the Giants, right? Let's 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 do like kind of a bit of a roster breakdown here of the Bay Area. Um, I started thinking, who would what players would constitute a um, uh, an all Bay Area team? So these would be people. I guess the only criteria is, you know, they they spent some good years. In, in an A's uniform or a Giants uniform in San Francisco and Oakland. So um, I only had to look up a couple of these guys. So um, so bear with me here, right? So for first base, I'm going with McGuire, right? So we'll um, we're we're not we're not including steroid controversies in this in this lineup. Um, I'll, I'll go with I'll go with uh, to Big Mac here for first base. Although I would imagine Jason Giambi would would get some consideration um, and both players, you know, they, they logged several years at uh, follow-up destinations and they're, they're certainly known for that as well, but I'll go with McGuire at first base, second base. I was kind of like, I, I said, Jeff Kent, like just off the top of my head. And then I looked it up and most likely Jeff Kent is the best Bay area team second baseman. Um, I don't know. Jeff Kent to me, I always just think of a guy with a mustache. And don't get me wrong, he's good. He was good, but I just you say Jeff Ken, I say mustache. You know what I mean? It's just yeah, it's yeah. where I it's where I go. Right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Before they were ironic, before they yes. were handed out. Um, exactly. You know, with the with the double bubble. Jeff Ken had a very um unironic, unapologetic mustache, right? Uh. Um shortstop, going back to the 70s here, which I'm less familiar with these players, just you know, not growing up in the era. Um, Burke Campanaris is the all-time ace hits leader. So he takes shortstop. Obviously, my era, I go with Walt Weiss, but Burke Campanaris will put on this team. All right, We want this team to win. Yeah, I mean, he was like the spark plug on all those 70s on World 70s. Series teams. Yeah. Yep. Another guy on those 70s teams, I think, 60s and 70s teams, uh, Captain Sal Bando for third base. Um, another dude I don't know a ton about, you know, I go like Carney Lansford, right? Um, another player with good facial hair. Um, but um, uh, Sal Bando looks to be the best third baseman. Um, Little known fat cousin of uh, Lou Albano, Captain Lou Albano. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, that old footage, I don't know, I see the rubber band hanging from his cheek. Right. I yeah. kind of figured something. He, he figured started something that in something. the dugout. It's such right, a weird right, thing. Right. right. Such a, hey, I've got a uh, um, another third baseman for you, alternate, uh, Matt Williams. Mm-hmm. Matt Williams was pretty solid. Pretty yeah. solid, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Another no, guy Matt, who had but, years at another team as well, too, with the Rangers. Yeah, was Diamondbacks too. Oh yeah, Diamondbacks. Yeah, right. I remember yep. that. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, Kung Fu Panda for a year or two. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Pablo Sandoval. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. just couldn't um, couldn't sustain it. Um, but Matt Williams had 
247 career home runs for the Giants specifically. So not bad, but I'm not mm-hmm. saying he's better than Salbando, but yeah. Um left field. Um I'm gonna go with Ricky Henderson. Uh probably the most exciting player of my lifetime, I would say. Um a guy that I think's the most fun to watch still. Or well, he still he's not playing still, although he did play until he was like forty-two or something. He's still um, playing on YouTube, man. Yes, Ricky yes. still plays um, on YouTube. I think he's in yes. a Japanese minor league at the yeah. moment. <laughs> Always had those badass neon batting gloves too, which I thought looked like they were just from the future. I was like, Jesus, that guy's cool. Um, it's interesting. Just, Ricky yeah. didn't play more center field. Um, he only played. He played 2,400 games in left field and only 400 games in center field. I wonder he's, why. He's, yeah, it's weird because he's built for – his game is built for center field. Yeah, you, you think know? you put the fastest guy in center field, but right. I know there's more right. to it than that. <laughs> sure, sure. Because right. the teams that he was on for the A's, I'm guessing they would have had – they would have probably had Dave Henderson in center field. And, and somebody right. else. Yeah, yeah. Because they, they had Dave Parker in right field unless he was dh um, or no, they have, I'm sorry, they have Conseco in right field and Parker DHing. My bad. Well, um, and there are two eras of Ricky on the athletics, too. It's so. true. It's true. Yeah. The um, uh, inspiration for Willie Mays Hayes from Major that's League. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but Ricky didn't hit like shit. He hit quite well. well um, <laughs> arguably sure. the best leadoff guy of all time. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then Bonds, you know, if, 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 if we get a DH, I guess, you know, these guys are, are uh, playing the American League, I'll give Bonds the DH. Um, gosh, we could, we could talk about Bonds all night, um, controversies included. Um, but, you know, I, yeah. even if he never touched the juice, the guy's still a, a very talented yeah, yeah, he's still well on his way to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if baseball's like about hand eye coordination, hitting's about hand eye coordination. I mean, he he had that down better. Oh, yeah. He could run. Contemporaries. Yeah. 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 He's a good fielder. Yeah. Um, he can yeah. run. So it's just always like he was never well liked, which I think when you overrated, that's overrated. Yeah. I don't, yeah. 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 When yeah. You, yeah. When you look back on that and I, I see that kind of through more mature eyes, I, I don't pay that much heed to that. Guess what? Uh, a lot of my favorite rock stars are probably saltier than Barry Bonds is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I, you know, want to uh, like, don't meet your idols. I'm sure, you know, yeah, like, I'm yeah, sure if I yeah. hung out with many of my favorite musicians, they I'd probably have a different opinion of them. Yeah, um, I'm glad that they aren't interviewed 160 times a year because I would find many reasons to yeah, dislike them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was the, the bad thing about, well, I mean the bad, you know, with bonds, he was in that era when it was like right after the game, you're sitting at your locker, just trying to get showered and stuff. And there's like, you know, 40 people with mics in your face, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. Uh, which is, it's good that they don't really allow that anymore. It's, yeah, peak, it's uh, peak ESPN for sure. Yeah. That's bound to get to you, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, him being an asshole, whatever, you know, I mean, the, the people that, that know him can vouch for that. I can't, you know? Um, so anyway, but I'll take him at the DH um, center field. I, this one unquestionably maze. 
Um, that's just not even close. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's the most value <laughs> on a team of, of hall of famers here. That's, that's the MVP. Um, right field could argue too with uh, Reggie Jackson in right field. God. So Henderson Mays and Jackson is my outfield. I'll, I'll put those three against about anybody. Um, catcher, a guy that uh, has resurrected his career after some pretty devastating injuries, Buster Posey. I mean, a guy, that guy's probably, I, you know, I, I, there were some years where I didn't really pay much attention to him, you know, not really following the Giants that closely. He's probably going to the Hall of Fame. That guy probably is. He's back on track. He, yeah, I yeah. think he's going to have to, he's going to have to have a, a few more solid seasons, um, but he's back on track. Well, I mean, I've always argued that they should consider positions with the Hall of Fame, you know. Hence, I think they do. You know, put, put Brian Downing in um, as my argument. Um, yeah. And so I, 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 maybe they'll take that into account, but um He's uh, he's he's really had a, a late career surge here. Yeah. Well, um, you know, if Harold Baines is in, I, I think Buster has a good <laughs> chance. <laughs> Harold Baines played for the A's for a little while. Oh, did he? Not long. Yeah. Yeah. He played um, after he left the White Sox, he got traded to the Rangers. And then after the Rangers, I believe he was on the A's. A- he was on the A's and the Orioles. Um, 91, 92. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 90, so. 91, 92. Oh, okay. Uh, Baines was on Baltimore in 90, 91, 92? Or he was um, on the he, A's then? Yeah, he, he went from the Rangers to the A's in 1990, mid-season. Okay, okay. Yeah. So he would have been, he would played in that World Series then with the A's, most likely. Um, assume, yeah, if, if he was on the postseason roster. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was weird, weird seeing him in that uniform. Um. So let's go to pitchers now. Um, a guy that that put together four seasons that rival just about anybody of our of our of our childhood, at least. Um, Dave Smoke, as if he couldn't Smoke. even be more of a badass. <sighs> Stewart, um, you know, I've got him up there, and um, he's a guy that you know was just he was. It didn't last long enough unfortunately, you know, his greatness. He had those four years where I think it was four years, four consecutive 20 win seasons. Now, granted, dude had a monster offense backing him up. Um, but still, you know, he was so mean looking and so intimidating on the mound that uh, just the intimidation factor alone puts him in the rotation oh, yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, Catfish Hunter, you know, probably – probably the best ace pitcher of all time. I would starting pitcher, I would guess. Um, uh, Juan Marshall, right. Of the, of the giants. Juan Marshall. Yeah. Juan Marshall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pardon my rude pronunciation there. Um, um, Ron Marshall. Um, it's just, it's a name I always see in print, but never hear anybody say because he played so long ago. Um, anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had to look up him, um, but yeah, he's 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 probably the best Giants pitcher ever. I would guess. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm still sticking up for Barry Zito because he played guitar. <laughs> Renaissance well, man. Yeah, I mean, um, the, and then Lincecum. Um, I'm not putting Lincecum in the rotation, but I I want to mention him just because he's in that camp of guys that have won two Cy Youngs that won't go to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And um, I, there's, there's, there's not a lot of those guys, but like 
winning one Cy Young is a big deal. Winning two is a really big deal. And those guys won't be in the Hall of Fame. Like, uh, right? Saberhagen won two. Right. Yeah. I believe. Yeah. 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 Um, you got to have some longevity, man. It's... Yeah. Right. No, yeah. the, the, the freak, uh, Lincecum, the freak show ended kind of early. Um, and if you guys aren't, if you guys remember correctly, I think he went to the angels for like a half a season and it just didn't work out. Like, yeah, he tried. Yeah. To yeah. He back. tried yeah. to resurrect it a, a few times. I, I feel fortunate that we saw as, as much of him as we did, you know, yeah. it's, um, uh, yeah. After the first one, uh, after the first sigh uh, that he got and just his second season, uh, people were saying, you know, how long can he hold, hold this up? And sure enough, he got, he got the second sigh in his, in his third season. Um, and then uh, he got some, some Cy Young votes in the two subsequent seasons, but after that it started to fall off and, and um, yeah, it was age 32 um, in 2016, he went two and six with the angels, like you said, but he had a, a nine plus ERA. Yes. That was it. That was all she wrote. Yeah. A uh, fun picture to watch though there for a couple of years. Oh man. I'm so, so unique. I mean, that, that's a guy where you could put um, his silhouette up and you would instantly know it's 10 right. months to come. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and he, he got the hair, uh, he, the days of confused. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a, a guy, Mitch. A spitting image of Mitch yeah. from days of confused. Yeah. 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 A, a guy that would have pitched. Well, they would have been on the same, the Giants teams in, I think, 2012, maybe 2014 as well. Um, Madison Bumgarner is only 31 years old, which strikes me as really weird. You know, I would have like, pegged him at like 35, yeah. Same, I, I, maybe even I'd put him in his late 30s, you know. But right. I, obviously he, he entered the league relatively young. He's been in the league for at least 10 years now, if not longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, he... Uh, well, I, well, I, I guess he, he's the one that shut down the Cubs that year, right, Levi? The year they won before they won the World Series wasn't like that was the year he was just like untouchable. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah because that's um. Well, so the Cubs won in sixteen. Well, it was in fourteen uh, when he basically single handedly won the World Series. He beat the Royals in the World Series. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, the year before the Royals did win the World Series, and th- that's why I always say the Royals were a Mad- a historic Madison Bumgarner away from two consecutive World Series championships. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's it's true. And he was the only thing standing between them and yeah. and two in a row. Well, just just a postseason stud. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, on the, yeah. on the biggest, he really shined on the biggest stage. Yeah. You know? And in regular season, he's, he's good, but he's, he's good. not yeah. like the postseason. Right. <laughs> um, he's and, never finished above fourth in the Cy Young voting. Yeah. 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 Right. And, you know, still only 31. And granted, he's on a terrible team right now on the Diamondbacks. So I, I have to admit, I've kind of forgotten about the guy. Yeah, um, yeah. that kind of happens when you go to a team that's like 45 games under 500. Um, but uh, 2017 God. was his last good year. Yeah. So like, uh, God, man, like he's, he was kind of, I mean, granted, maybe he could bounce back. I don't know. Um, you know, he, maybe he's able to kind of, you know, retool this game and I don't know, maybe, maybe a few years and maybe does he come out of the bullpen? I don't know, whatever. Um God, man, like it all happened in his 20s. You know, by the time he hit his 30s, he was done. I mean, he's he's not done. He's he's not. A, let's be honest. He's he's just, he's not that effective of a pitcher anymore. 
Yeah. Yeah. But he, ne- he never has to, never has to buy another beer in San Francisco. That's for no, sure. No, no, definitely. <laughs> um, and he could buy with the money he's getting paid. He could buy a few bars in Arizona. Um, so, so yeah, see, he, he can afford a drink um, in Arizona. If no it's ironic how one. that works though. It's yes, ironic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, pretty, pretty crazy. Um, and then uh, lastly, uh, one of baseball's great names, Vita Blue, will round out the rotation here. Um, gosh, you know, probably next to Catfish, the A's best um, best starting pitcher, you know? Sure. Played, yeah. played for both the A's and the Giants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's got mm-hmm. that going for him on our all Bay Area team. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then closing the games out, you know, gosh, you got to give the ball to Eckersley. You know, another, another, another mustachioed gentleman. Yeah, for sure. Um, Vita Blue won both the Cy and the MVP um, in 1971. His, just his, um, it was his first full season in the bigs. And he goes out and wins the Cy and the MVP. Yep. Hell yeah. Yeah. Stud. 1.82 ERA. I went 24 and 8. Eight shutouts, 300 innings, 312 innings. Golly. 183 ERA plus, which is unbelievable. Yeah. They were working that guy, man. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The next year he only managed 150. I mean, so he kind of paid for it. <laughs> God, yeah, man. Well, God, you go 312 the year before. Jesus. Yeah. 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 Those were the days. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 Nowadays you would get a grievance from the MLBPA if you do that yeah. to the guy. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, Vita Blue is going like five and a half innings now. Yeah. If yeah. He's pitching today. Yeah. 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 Um, I like this roster game. This is, uh, yeah, this is pretty solid. One. I'd like to compare it, can, it, it to uh, some other crosstown rosters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it'd be fun. We could, and at another time, we'll fill out the bullpen and the bench. Um, maybe that's where we can, we can plug Terry Steinbach. Anyway. Um, <laughs> So, guys, we're, we're, last thing about the stadiums, um, the Oakland Coliseum, um, which we, uh, which is, is it, is it, what's it, is it called something else now? It is, right? Oh, um, the, it the is. R- Ricky Henderson Field at uh, Ring got... Central Coliseum. <laughs> of <laughs> yes. course. Right? Um, um, this rolls you know, off the tongue. I like the Ricky Henderson part. Um, yeah, just that, that's totally cool to name the stadium after that guy. But yeah, yeah. I guess you've you've got to pay the bills somehow with uh, Ring Central on. Um, I don't know about you. I, I can't. I, I can't get out of the habit of calling it uh, O.Co. Coliseum. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, uh, it'll be a while before I get over that. Right. Right. <laughs> well, anyway, that place. Hosted some badass concerts in the seventies, and and I guess probably up in, in the in the eighties as well. But particularly the seventies day on the green shows. You know, researching this episode, looked up some of those lineups from um, concert lineups from those shows. It's the shit that classic rock dreams are made of. Essentially, um, these were all big Bill Graham shows. Obviously, being in the Bay Area, and he was putting together these shows um, in. In, in the in the summer and you know in the 70s you, you, you know you name them they played it essentially right right i mean yeah yeah there's yeah. a whole wikipedia entry for it if anybody wants to dive into it it's just like 
the who's who of rock and roll of the 70s. Yeah. And I mean, they were so successful that he even branched out to where there was like funk on the green. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, there was like soul on the green. Then there was a jazz on the green. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it would have been, it's why I need to build a time machine. (laughs) Yeah. The one, the one from 78 I saw the other day because it was like July 23rd. So, you know, we're recording this in early August, but, um, and it was like, you know, Aerosmith at their prime as the headliner, you know, you got, um, foreigner, um, got, I think, um, Pat Travers, ACDC and, um, I want to, and then Van, a young Van Halen in 78. So it's like, shit. You know, for that era. Um, well, and that's fun. so many bands. It's like, I see why Coke was so prevalent, man. How the fuck do you make it through that many bands? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you can't yeah. just drink beer through all those acts. You'll be right. gone by right. like the third band. Right, right. And God, you got Halen kicking off the show. I mean, you're starting out with a bang, you know. But uh, oh. yeah, all, all, all just just check, do us a favor and, and check them out. All the day on the green lineups are just great. Um, so uh Really good stuff. So they they ran all the way through 92. They were an annual Hmm. event through 92, and then they Uh took a break. But that last show in 92, Uh it's the classic combination of U2, Public Enemy, and Sugar Cubes, a.k.a. Bjork's original band. (laughs) That's that's an interesting trio. That is interesting. A little bit of everything there. Yeah, Yeah. that's like a a Lollapalooza-type line. Uh, Right? It is. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because remember that first year of Lollapalooza, it was like Jane's Addiction, like Body Count and Susie and the Banshees. Yeah, right, which are great. I, I love it all. But um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting yeah. Uh, way to close out the day on the greens. All right, guys, well, let's, let's, let's you know, let's switch to music now. Um, let's, let, well, let's, well, intentionally, we are leaving out a lot of the late 1960s here. Um, that is... Uh, critical but but pretty well-worn territory we also did a uh, a full episode on the grateful dead which you can dip into our archives to listen to and um you know just the all of the um i don't know summer of love type stuff um is, has been pretty well covered so we're gonna go a little past that tonight kind of starting in the 70s and um talk about how um, how great music uh from the bay area was in the 70s 80s and uh, you know up until the 90s really as well so um anybody want to kick this off with the uh, 70s stuff jonathan i know i'll start with i'll start i'll start with um with you um you have uh developed a uh, uh a new fondness for uh the pointer sisters I, I, uh, I so have. why don't you go ahead and start with them because um, I think everybody probably knows the Pointer Sisters, but they may not always associate them with the Bay Area. Uh, no, you know, I for sure did not. And, and it was my wife who pointed it out to me. She, she said, oh, you should you should play some Pointer Sisters. Um, and I kind of uh, scoffed or laughed at it and thinking, you know, the classic 1980s top 40 stuff. And um, but uh, inevitably went down the Wikipedia rabbit hole and saw that the first album came out in about 1971 and uh, so I, I, I was like, all right, let's start at the beginning uh, with that self-titled record. And um, so I, I was swept up in it. Um, and, and I feel like 
uh, you know, they're, they're my favorite band of the summer. And, <laughs> and so first of all, uh, they're actual sisters. Uh, uh, and, uh, for the first several albums, it was, it was for the sisters. And then the lineups kind of changed after that. Um, but I, obviously they're, it's their eighties catalog that sold the best. And, 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 uh, but it's their seventies catalog. Uh, it sold moderately well too, but it's, it's just this total eye opener for me of jazz and blues and soul and this precise execution of traditional uh, vocal and harmony, heavy jazz tunes. It's just like totally jaw dropping. And, so their albums are so diverse in that they they pivot to these barn burning R and B tunes, um, uh, like uh, "Yes We Can Can" and "Wang Dang Doodle," "Grinning in Your Face," uh, "How Long," "Going Down Slowly." I mean, some of these tunes that that just you know might be eight or nine minutes long, and then they, in the middle of all of of, of this R and B and jazz, like really traditional jazz. Um, they had these, this huge hit with the country tune called fairy tale, um, which they wrote, uh, they didn't write all of their, uh, all of their, Mm -hmm. uh, songs, uh, much like many artists of the seventies. Um, and ultimately this, this tune led them to the Grand Ole Opry, uh, where they were like the first, um, I believe the first black artist to play the Grand Ole Opry. Um, they got Grammy nominations out of it. And it just shows it's an example of, of their breadth and execution. And, and uh, you know, you, you, you watch the YouTube videos and they come out, they have this, uh, this one I watched, they have a coat rack on stage and they all kind of, you know, they, they put their scarves on there and, and um, uh, that there's tap dancing in the middle of it. And, um, uh, and then we even watched a, a video from uh, July 4th uh, from like the late 80s. And then they come out and they do this traditional jazz stuff that that harkens back to some Americana. And then they bust into their 80s hits and, and the crowd just ate it up. But um, uh, but to go back to the 70s stuff, you know, it's a self-titled um, an album called That's a Plenty album called Steppin is probably my favorite. And then a fourth album called Having a Party, which gets a bit more into the dance and, and disco. And then that was followed up with like the seventies rock phase um, where they also had some hits, including a Bruce Springsteen song and, and uh, some other covers. And it's, it's good. It's okay. Um, but it's just, in my opinion, not nearly as interesting as their first four records from the early to mid seventies, um, which again, you can listen to it over and over again. And um, uh, it's just wholly entertaining because it is so diverse and so well executed. And uh, I encourage you to dig in. Yeah. Well, well, you would, you, you mentioned a lot of genres there that they were mixing up, um, you know, with funk and jazz and soul. I'm thinking of uh, a couple other artists that, um, that, that really, you know, mix those things quite well. And even though he emerged in the sixties um, and uh, you know, still carried on in the seventies um he's a little bit part of that Fillmore kind of scene, but, um, you know, I think, um, such a trailblazer Levi, um, tells, I mean, Sly Stone, um, is, uh, you know, was, was a genius musician. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, uh, I don't know if people always associate him with the Bay area either. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, in 1964, he was in the Bay area working as a DJ in San Mm -hmm. Mateo. And so that's kind of how he got his start in the music business. And um, 
1966, he had formed Sly and the Family Stone with members of his family. And then also um, some white boys, <laughs> as they would say, because they were really the first major American group to be racially and gender integrated. And, and multiracial bands always work, dude. <laughs> from from Tower of Power, who I'm going to talk about in a little bit, all the way up to Hot Chocolate, right? Right, yeah. It, it always works. Yeah. Bring it yeah. together. It always works. Color. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, dude. And so... Um, UB40, it always works. Anyway, go ahead. You no, know, you know, their their early stuff, while, you know, it was during the height of, of the Summer of Love and Hate Ashbury and all that, you know, it did start out with you know, a contemporary bright, happy sound with their first records, like Dance to the Music and Everyday People. But kind of by the later 60s and early 70s, the sound had kind of changed and gotten a little darker, a little more with the current times. You know, they lost some of their commercialness, mm-hmm. but they gained all the their reputation as just being like the pillars of early funk. Mm-hmm. They... um you know, they, they're considered, you know, the album fresh and uh, what's the other one. I'm trying to think of it. Uh, There's a riot going on. Some of those records were just, you know, some of the earliest, earliest commercialized funk records made. Uh And so, um, you know, the, they're, I think they're underrated in that, that you don't hear a lot about them being as one of the bigger bands of the 60s. But I mean, you know, they were considered probably one of the best shows at Woodstock. Yeah. That year. Yeah. And then just, you know, a month before that, they had played the Harlem Cultural Festival that Questlove just came out with the documentary Summer of Soul on. Oh, they're and, so good in that. Oh, it's yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. They're excellent. And so, I mean, they they're definitely one of those bands where man i wish i could have gone back in time and seen a sly in the family stone show just because you know they were so powerful on stage because you know they talk about it a little bit in the documentary but like rock bands at that time weren't really known for like flamboyant looks yet or anything and they were one of the first acts to like come out in super colorful clothes and you know, just be, be rock stars. Like that was a term that, you know, people didn't really know what that was at that point in uh-huh. 1967, 68. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, I would say, you know, Sly and those guys, you know, Larry Graham on bass, who later went on to be the leader of Graham Central Station, which is another huge funk band of the Plate seven. Of, Plate of Prince, too. Oh, yeah. 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 He's yeah. literally probably the godfather of slap bass. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you can't go wrong there. And um, one of my favorite other uh, personnel in the band was Cynthia Robinson. She's the, the feisty trumpet player. Mm. She's the girl who, uh, during, uh, during Dance to the Music, where she... Sly says Cynthia and Jerry got a message they're saying, and she just screams, "All the squares go home." So yeah, <laughs> she, she did a lot of the vocals, right? Yeah, she would yeah. do a lot of those spoken word yells. Oh, I love things. her vocals, man. Oh those yeah, awesome. oh yeah, yeah. No, they're yeah. so unique. Yeah, it's like literally probably one of the best lines in rock. All the squares go home. <laughs> you know, and so yeah, 
just they don't get their due. And so it was cool that that Questlove's documentary shined a little more light on him. Yeah, yeah, he had a, a killer band. Um, I got to see that. I, that's it's on Hulu for anybody. It is, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, yeah. I, I got to carve out some time for that one because it uh, sounds like it's unbelievable. Worthwhile it's, viewing. The footage is just unreal. Yeah, they yeah. they showed it here locally in the theater for two days, and I. Oof. I saw that it was happening the second day and I just couldn't swing it. I was going to like go by myself just so I could see it on the big screen, but sure. I ended up just catching it on Hulu. Yeah. Nice. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do my, um, my contribution to, uh, to this, this kind of funk soul jazz wheelhouse. God, give me, um, Give me Sly Stone, Pointer Sisters, and Tower of Power tour about uh, about about seventy four, and I'm in. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, Oakland, um, it, it, Oakland's the home of uh, a, a band called Tower of Power, which um, is really a it's a it's a collective, um, definitely an ensemble cast. There's been about sixty people that have passed through Tower of Power. um you know it's 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 um a big you know big horn section you know r&b band um from oakland that's been around since the late 60s and and really um you know levi had mentioned great bassists like larry graham um the guy that was kind of the mainstay and he just died last year uh of tower power the guy that was that was really there um from the get-go they took a few years off in the 80s but other than that they kept going uh was a guy named Rocco Prestia who's um who I didn't learn about until probably about 20 years ago um when he played on um the government mule had an album where they you know brought in a bunch of historic bass players and Larry Graham was one of them too that's where I first learned about him so I, I, I didn't really get hip to Tower of Power until until probably I was like in college um I heard about him on there a dude I hung out with told me about him and um so I listened to him a little bit then and I've 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 since you know in prep for this episode dusted him off and I'm sure glad I did um you know Prestia and um you know Willie Fulton on guitar um Mac Gillette on trumpet and there's there's a handful of guys that played with him um Brett Byers I guess I guess if you want to consider like the cream of the crop of Tower of Power, it's it's probably like like seventy two to like seventy five or so. Um, that's when they had um, uh, uh, Lenny Williams as um, the the lead singer. Now a lot of lead singers passed through Tower of Power as well. Like I mean, the machine that kept Tower of Power going really was the horns and and Rocco's bass. Um, so a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of vocalists passed through, even during, even during the seventies when they were, you know, kind of at the height of their popularity, um, you know, they, they were, they were rotating the, uh, vocalists out on albums then. Um, so it was, I, I don't know if, if maybe that kind of hurts their reputation a little bit, you know, um, I say that in the sense that, you know, I think, I think people hip to them, know them, and they certainly, they had a few hits, um, but you know, I don't know if you, if you just ask kind of like the, the regular classic rock FM radio fan, like who tower power is, they may not know is my guess. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the closest thing that people may have heard is What is Hip? That was right, obviously right. their biggest tune. And yeah. that, that first self-titled record is just... <laughs> oh god yeah yeah it's a great great record yeah i and, recommend all their 70s stuff um and even even a little bit of the first couple albums of the 80s are pretty good too um you know they're a little more evocative of of the the 80s kind of r&b sound you know that was emerging then a little slicker you know a little more kind of um dripping oozing with soul more than funk probably um there's a record or there's that I was going to just talk for one second. There's a mm-hmm. record of theirs yeah. that came out in 81 called direct. Yeah. And it was yep. on a uh, label called Sheffield labs, which is an audiophile record company who made um, direct to disc recordings. And mm-hmm. so I, I don't know if we've talked about that ever in the past, but like direct to disc is they set up the band, they set up the recording equipment. And as the band plays, they're cutting the lacquer. And oh, wow. so if you F up, it's on the record. And so like, it's kind of like high pressure, but it just makes for some awesome recordings. And uh, theirs is excellent. If you, you can still find copies of it out in the wild sometimes, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's called direct. It has a really cool logo graphic yeah. of all the horns on the front. Yeah. It's a and good, so, it's a good looking cover art. Yeah. yeah I, I recommend that for, for the later part of their catalog. Like I said, it was 81, I think. And so that, that's a really good one to check out too, as well as the self-titled. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, again, with, with 60 guys in the band, I'm bound to miss a few, everybody. Sorry. And I'm, um, I'm still learning my tower of power family tree, but um, the guy that was the founder of the band that did stick around all those years, um, has, is a, a guy by the name of Emilio Castillo. He is he's the saxophone player who is the founder of the band, and he has stuck around. So, I mentioned Rocco Prestia. Um, Emilio Castillo is 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 the the founder essentially of um, of Tower of Power. Um, if you're going to start somewhere, you know, I recommend um, any of the albums where Lenny Williams is on vocals. The mid, the album that Levi mentioned, the self titled one. He's 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 on that one. Um, he's, he's, he's with them, you know, like many vocals, a short period of time, like 72 to 74, something like that. Um, and then, um, you know, they, 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 they were a horn section kind of for hire too. You know, I mean, they recorded with everybody from Aerosmith to Elton John, to Huey Lewis, to the dead, to Santana, Cat Stevens, you know, Rod Stewart, uh, Toto, <laughs> you know, um, uh, the, the list goes on and on. Um, so, you know, they're, they're definitely, they're just, they're pros, man, all those guys. Um, so yeah, get, uh, get hip to tower of power. It's such what a unique band. band. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it, the idea that it's a, it's a band that's lasted so long where a vocalist isn't you know, the, the, the centerpiece isn't, yeah. Isn't the centerpiece. Yeah. That's um, um, yeah. That's pretty unique. Last thing about them guys, because I could, I could go on for a while because I've been so hip to them lately. Um, You know who they kind of remind me a lot of, you know, we talked about funk and Levi mentioned Sly Stone Um, more than say like a parliament, you know, which is like, if I think of funk bands, that's who I think of first. Um, they remind me of kind of like, to me, they're kind of like a West Coast Chicago, you know? Yeah, for sure. That's who they kind of remind me of. You know, obviously you got the big horns, but also, 
you know, Chicago was able to craft some balance, you know, as well as, you know, the real kind of, um, you know, driving kind of horn songs that they had in the early 70s. Um, Tower Power was able to do that too, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. So they 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 really remind me a lot of Chicago as well with, um, you know, just a funkier Chicago, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, get them. They're, they're, they're great. They're just, they're, their their 70s stuff is just is all just choice so check it out so yeah and then well let's let's transition to the next decade here uh guys from um well well uh shit um god there's so much to cover here um <laughs> there really is um we, we we've spent a lot of time you know we, we've 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 spent some time in the 70s here um uh, you know with neil shown still going strong in the band that is they just uh, played Lollapalooza about four or five days ago here in Chicago. Um, we'll talk about Journey here for a minute. Um, I've uh, I've learned to appreciate them more over in recent years. Um, they're one of those bands that I think like on, I, I, I blame WYMG, the classic rock radio station in Springfield, who... Um, you know, I'm not holding out for it, but we'll probably never have me on the air as much as I badmouth them on this this podcast. Um, you know, just they play the same fucking songs over and over again. And they they do that to Journey, uh, who I think are a great band. They do that to Boston, who I think are a great band. You know, they do that to the Eagles, which I, I like the Eagles, but I don't like any of the Eagles singles because I've just heard them so much. WYMG kind of ruined Journey for me. Then in more recent years, I got into Journey's kind of the wider catalog and going beyond the singles of Journey. And I like it. You know what? Journey to me, if I could put it concisely, it's, you know, it's like, it's like prog roots. Like the first couple albums are kind of proggy. That's when Neil Schoen. The first three without without uh, Steve Perry. What is it? Ross Valerie and Neil Schoen were in Santana. So, you know, you got your Bay. And Greg Raleigh. And Greg Raleigh, excuse me. Um, Uh you know, it was basically like the guys that were playing with Santana formed their own band. And then they bring in this guy with like, you know, with not finding much commercial success in those prog tinged albums that I'm talking about, that I was referencing. They bring in this guy with just this amazing set of pipes that nobody's heard of before. And after that, it was right to the top of the charts. Um, and, you know, even if, even if it's not your thing, I think you have to admire uh, they they can they can they could craft a good tune. Oh my god! Know? Yeah, like yeah. As, as I've gotten older, I just appreciate production and yeah, songwriting and all same of that here. so much more. And the Infinity record is just so goddamn good, man. They're the first one with Steve from seventy eight. Yeah. Oh god, feeling that way too. Oh, feeling I, that I, way into any time, man. Yeah, it's just oh. I, I, I like it. I like how they mix vocalists there too. You know, because you oh, have yeah. I, they would you trade have, uh, Greg and Steve. Yeah, right. I that works so well on those. Oh yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah. They uh, you know they they got really lucky in finding Steve, man. And oh god, and yeah. Once they did, you know, you got to respect seventy-five million plus records sold. Had about, had, had about a six-year run there where they were really on top. Oh yeah, know? they had yeah. they were they had like, an Atari game. Yeah, like seventy-seven. <laughs> they, yeah, you're right. Yeah, God, who gets that? You know, gosh. Um, 
it'd be cool if a lot of other bands in that era had Atari games. Um, right. There probably should have been a Boston Atari game. Yeah. No Who knows? Kidding, maybe, huh? maybe Atari went to Boston first and Boston was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, but yeah. From, from about like 77 to 83, they were just, they, they couldn't lose, man. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. You, so. you got to respect Journey. And, and yeah. the, uh, like I said, just the song crafting and the production and, they, they, you know, they, a lot of people, you know, they do, they lump them into the whole classic rock, you know, waste sure. bin of, of adult rock radio programming, just, yeah, and so, yeah. but like, you, you, if you really enjoy music, you got to respect them, in my mind. Gets we I you got a homework assignment. Go go put on a uh a feeling that way anytime uh after after this episode, all right? And I I you know I, I did spin like the first five. Um okay. and yeah, there, there's respect, like Levi says, there's there's undoubtedly respect for the production and the uh and the songwriting. Um, but yeah, it's just not something I'm reaching for. Shown can play too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh they're I mean, extremely talented. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean what what's shown too? Like what is like playing Woodstock when he was like like 18, 19, something, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Nuts. Uh with Santana, right? Yeah, right. Well, right. and yeah, Santana got added at the last minute on that. Mm-hmm. I forgot who dropped out, but Carlos like, yeah. was really young then too. I mean, oh, he, yeah, had, like, he had a yeah. young crew. Yeah. They really weren't even supposed to be there. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that basically became their coming out party. Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, let, let's go one more in the '70s, and then we'll we'll I I do, I do want to spend some time uh, in the '80s and a little bit of the '90s as well, guys. Um, Levi, I don't commonly associate the Doobie Brothers with with San Francisco. I mean, I, I've always liked the Doobie Brothers, but right, I, I would say most people have no clue yeah. of their Bay Area ties. But yeah, they right. were formed in San Jose in uh, 1970, okay. and how they kind of got their start was they were kind of a house band for the Hell's Angels. <laughs> And so they would play like parties for them. And um, that's kind of reflected in the first self-titled Doobie Brothers record. If you look at the cover, they look like bikers. <laughs> I'd and imagine then, if the Hells Angels put in a request, you pretty much have to play it, right? right, or, or, right or they're going to yeah. kick your ass. Yeah, right. Play, play Moni Moni. Like, oh. Again. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, so, but yeah. And so... By their second album, uh, Toulouse Street, in 1972, they had kind of hit their groove, which that album featured Listen to the Music and Jesus is Just All Right, which were huge hits. And um, that album also features Bill Payne of Little Feet on on keys, which is kind of a cool fun fact Mm -hmm. uh, of rock. And then uh, in 1973, their next album, Captain and Me, was a classic with Long Train Running, China Grove, and... uh, you know, everyone's heard those songs a million times by now, but it's just crazy to think there was a time when those songs were fresh. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so that's what you sometimes have to do when you step back to look at and listen to stuff like that is, you know, you got to realize there was a time when you no one had heard that song nine right. million times on the radio. And uh, one of the coolest covers in rock because the band had like management or someone got a hold of warner brothers like backlot and so they stole all these costumes or borrowed all these costumes and props 
And so they look kind of like the old West and they got a carriage with a full horse drawn setup and they rented out a portion of the highway that was being rebuilt because it had collapsed in an earthquake in 1971. And so they were rebuilding this portion of the highway. So it was shut down. So it's just a classic shot of the band, like in old West gear on a modern freeway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite covers. Uh, a little side story. I got to meet Pat Simmons once. He came into the record store I worked in. And um, no one knew who he was. I knew, obviously, who he was. The Doobie you, Brothers, yeah. they were in town playing. And mm-hmm. so... Did you know I, when he walked through the door? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Long hair, the mustache, little beret. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. It, was, it was Pat Simmons from the Doobie Brothers. And so... I kind of discreetly went upstairs and grabbed two copies of the captain and me out of inventory. And, you know, I helped him find a few things. He was looking for Lord such. I don't know if anyone out there is familiar with him, but he was a British artist that was like friends with Jimmy page and a bunch of the other guys. Like if you look up Lord such records, he always had guests on them. And so screaming Lord such. Yeah. Um. And so I helped him find a couple of those that we had in the rare record section. And uh, he bought a few things and, you know, I was like, Hey, would you mind signing these one for me? And then one to put up on the wall at the store. And he's like, Oh yeah, no problem, man. He was super nice. This was in 2010. And um, right as he was leaving, one of the owners came up from the back and was like, who was that? And I was like, it was the guy from the Doobie brothers. He was like, Oh my God, you didn't tell me. But I knew that owner would have been the guy who was going to be like all up on him and kind of like, I was, I just, I wanted the guy to enjoy his time in the school. Yeah, right. So, so yeah, we, I, I was like, hey, well, I got him to sign a record for us to put on the wall. So that kind of made up for it. I'm glad but, that you, you were able to find the things that he was looking for too. Cause there's like pressure there. Right. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, do you have Lord such? And I'm like, ah, I'm such kind of an obscure artist. Not a lot right. of people really listen to him. And he didn't so, exactly ask you for Frampton comes alive. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Finally getting it after all these years. <laughs> yeah. Looking for uh, Peter Gabriel. So, yeah. but, uh, so yeah. And so that was in 73 in 1975 tom johnson who was the founding member of the band along with pat simmons he was so kind of road worn and had health issues and had an ulcer from life on the road that he had to bow out and so jeff the skunk baxter and michael mcdonald joined the doobie brothers and in between them working with steely dan who they kind of became band members for at that period as well That's like the sister band of the doobie Brothers, right yeah you know? yeah and like so any- in 1976 they're probably their biggest record i'm pretty positive sales wise taking it to the streets came out which mm-hmm. you know had a ton of hits off of it as well killer album cover too on that just oh yeah, yeah sunglasses yeah yeah i believe that's pat simmons i think on the cover okay. of that one okay um yeah and so also in 1978 they were on a cameo of the TV show, What's Happening. They they were on an iconic two-part episode uh, series in which the, uh, I believe it was Rerun. Rerun, yeah. He he was trying to sneak a recorder in and record the Doobie Brothers show. 
And so the Doobie Brothers catch him and, uh, you know, it becomes this whole two-part episode on why you shouldn't bootleg concerts, which was a big thing in the late 70s, which, you know, it's like, that. how ironic is it that there's a band named after smoking weed telling some teenagers not to to record a show on a cassette tape. Don't do anything illicit, please. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're up there with Journey almost. They sold over 50 million records, wow. which is a lot of a lot of units. Doobies were huge, yeah. Um, I'm, uh, I, I saw McDonald's back on this, this yeah, tour yeah. that they're doing he's, now. He's like yeah. sporadically kind of come back throughout the years. And yeah, right. he's on this current right. tour. Um, well, let's, let's go to the 80s here. Um, um guys uh and talking about um really kind of gosh i mean probably after the grateful dead i would guess that the biggest bay area institution music is is probably metallica right i mean um i don't know if people always just like your kind of average fan on the street sort of knows that associates metallica with san francisco or with with the bay area but um you know, we'd be uh, there. We've we've got to we've got to cover them here, man. Um, I'm reminded uh, that they're from the Bay Area only when the Giants are in the playoffs and they bring out <laughs> James and Kirk to like play as the national anthem just on their guitars before like one of the games in the right. playoffs. I'm like, oh yeah, they're from San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah, they are kind of a perennial um, uh, World Series or uh, you know national anthem uh, yeah. singers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, I, you know, obviously, you know, a band a lot of people are well versed in, and um, the first, the first three, arguably four records are all, um, you know, career and really genre defining. Um, in my research for this episode, because I think this is one of the more fascinating aspects of their career to talk about, um, I revisited they're albums that are more polarizing, right? Um, that would be Load, Reload, and St. Anger. Um, I remember when it came out in 1996, Load, um, you know, split the fan base, obviously. There was, they were coming off their biggest album commercially where they really, you know, they, they, they just didn't, they weren't, they weren't even, they weren't a big heavy metal band at that point when, you know, by the time the Black Album hit, they were, or the Black Album found its success. Um, they were one of the biggest bands in the world. You know, they transcended popularity in metal. You know, they were, they're up there with like freaking U2 and Guns N' Roses. And, you know, I mean, they're just, they're that big. Um, and uh, they tour like <laughs> nonstop, play basically like every continent for, uh, for a few years. And they go and, you know, then, I guess there's a little bit of downtime. And then 1996, they cut their hair and um, make a load. And I, I guess maybe at the time, I, 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 I remember hating the record when it came out. And I probably, I probably hated it because it was cool to hate it. You know what I mean? It was, I, I jumped on that bandwagon and Metallica sucks now, you know, like, 17 year old me's like oh these guys sell out pricks you know these guys right. suck even though the black album i i you know i um i don't know we, we we could talk about the black album as well and it 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 it's certainly um certainly a more polished effort than the other four records um but anyway with load coming out um 
I remember Levi, you telling me with load and, 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 and reload that, you know, we were talking a few years ago, you're like, give them a, a, a chance, right? Like, like those albums aren't as bad as everybody makes them out to be. And in preparation for this episode, I listened to both of those records quite a few times, more load than reload. But um, I'm with you. They they deserve. I'm not saying there there isn't some 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 clunkers on those those two records because right, there definitely sure. there definitely are. I think you could probably Mama make said. one. You could yeah, you could make one good record out of the two of them. You know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, out of the two on their face value, load is by far the better record. But, but I, yeah. I won't question you again, Levi. You were right, dude. You were right. Like they those those albums. I think uh, I recommend that everybody go back and, and revisit them and 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 try to uh, just walk into both of those with an open mind and abandon all those preconceived notions or well justified notions that you had in the uh, in the in the mid in the mid and late nineties about those two records and um, and and give them a revisit because I I think they're really interesting um, and they 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 speak to a band evolving um and and you know i respect that um every other band i listen to every other band that i like a lot i wouldn't like them as much if they didn't change you know if they didn't change some things i don't i don't want to hear the same pearl jam record over and over again i don't want to you know hear um whatever else um so they did that and and they really got quite a bit of flack for it and um I don't, I don't think they deserve all the criticism they received for those records. For sure, yeah. I mean, it, in the metal genre, it, it is super looked down upon by fans, it seems like, to evolve, to change. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they, they said, screw that. We don't care. You know what I mean? This is who we are. We want to change. We want to – we're not – Smirnoff swilling 20 year olds anymore do you know right. what i mean like yeah. and so when you get older your taste change you evolve the music should evolve with it you know what i mean i think it would be sad to see a 40 something year old band trying to play the exact same type of music that they played when they were in their 20s mm-hmm. you know and so it was of the time when it was kind of it was kind of cool to bag on records in that era you know what i mean we didn't really talk about green day much but like dookie was one of the first records that it was like cool to say it was passe do you know yeah 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 right those guys are punk you know they're yeah and so of that era it was you know it was kind of the thing to bag on records which you don't really see that a ton in today's music they don't seem as divisive as they were when we were growing up i mean i I also think they were um they had kind of more cultural cachet when we were growing up you know they were bigger they were bigger yeah you know they were released just in music in general you don't bigger promotional machine behind them all that yeah yeah and so those those two records for sure i mean saint anger i can kind of take or leave but um I think, yeah, the, you hit it on the head when it's like you could take songs from Load and Reload and make one pretty good, solid record mm-hmm. that, that yeah. I would put up against some of their others. And I mean, 
you mentioned it was kind of they fractured their audience a little bit and that had already kind of happened with the black album because yeah, sure there were there were people who were like oh this isn't ride the lightning or this isn't master of puppets when when inner sandman came on yeah and and so it's like they weren't afraid of doing that and then right. the whole of the whole same era that got people to be kind of anti-Metallica was the whole Napster thing that we haven't really touched on. But, Mm -hmm. you know, going after people, which in hindsight now, it's like they were the only ones sticking up for the music industry. You know what I mean? They were, they were the Frank Zappa of their times in that, in that regards. And fast forward 20 years and record sales are shot. You know, they, they, well, yeah. they're non-existent, you know, I yeah, mean, you, you have 2 million right. streams and you get a check for three bucks. Yeah, exactly. So they were onto something they were sticking up for the musicians. Um, I remember Lars said it during the, the court footage, you know, nobody works, you know, plumber doesn't work for free. I'm maybe paraphrasing there a little bit, but you know, and it's like, yeah, true. And at the time, everybody's like, those guys are dicks, you know, like, right, right. Those guys sue them. It's like, yeah, it's completely justified. It's, it's not metal to talk about the money, Gabe. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Well, guess what? <laughs> He's got a mortgage. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Probably <Yeah>. more than one. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I. I almost think, um, you know, the, the last two records that they put out, Death Magnetic, and then I got to admit, I forgot what the other one's called, uh, the, the Hardwired something, yeah. right? Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Those are pretty good. Um, they are really intentionally trying to sound like old Metallica there. Yeah, so I would I, agree. I kind of find, and maybe it's just because so much time has passed, you know, I kind of find myself, I, I found Load and Reload not better, but kind of more interesting. Right. I listened to those, that that Death Magnetic and Hardwired to Self-Destruct probably only once or twice. I was like, well, this sounds good. All the songs kind of sound the same, you know, but. Yeah. Um, They're not taking as much chances as they were. No, on Load no, and, 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 and they got they got praised for it. You know, it's like, oh, Metallica's back. You know, they sound like old Metallica. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I Maybe I've just got a, maybe I've just got like kind of a morbid, fascination with the load reload period now but i don't know i mean i'm gonna if you guys if you guys got a bottle of surge soda for me i can listen to load and well no man i agree surge. you know i would put hero of the day up there with pretty much any metallica song it's a great song in quality you know and yeah i agree the singles from that album are are really interesting mm-hmm. um until it sleeps and king nothing i i'm um you know, I, I, I only heard them on FM radio when they were out when they came out and I didn't turn it off then. And I, I wouldn't turn it off now. Videos are pretty bad for those songs. Are they? You know, they're, yeah, they're like, I felt like the nine inch nails closer video, like was like the blueprint for music videos from like 94 to like 99. Grime. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, uh, they're they're of that ilk. They, they, everybody just looks kind of uncomfortable during them. Yeah, well, yeah. I honestly, I don't know if Metallica ever really had a great music video. Oh, the video for for one, no. Um, yeah, that was the yeah. first one. Man, they didn't make they didn't make that, that, didn't that, make any. that, that video like freaked me out. I saw that video as a kid, and I couldn't sleep that night. Right, <laughs> and yeah. like I still think about that video like once a month, and it just gives me the creeps. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that was weird. That was you know it. Um, it, it, uh, they had resisted they held, they held the out whole, for a long time. Man. Yeah, they had resisted the whole early MTV era because they could have yep. totally tried to cash in on that. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, they were by the time that Justice for All came out, they were they were playing some arenas, you know. But um, one kind of got their foot in the door with the mainstream crowd, and then it just totally the whole body was in the door by the time the Black Album came out. You know, Gabe, you said that they did a pretty cool thing with a contest winner. Yeah. When Load came out, um, MTV um, had a contest where I think they had like four finalists and um, everybody was getting like a Metallica package, right? With a bunch of stuff. This is all as promo for, for Load. Um, and then the, the grand prize winner was going to get surprised with Metallica, right? And they were going to play a concert like at your house or whatever. Huh. Um so this dude that lived in Washington State, um, I remember watching this won the um, the grand prize. So he got like a Jeep, I think. And, and then Metallica came to his house, right? Um, and I want to say maybe they played it like the bar down the street from his house. Like they set it up there. And it just looks like a really kick-ass time. And they come off as, um, I think in those moments at least, and I don't know how much performing for the camera they're doing. They, they come off as really genuine dudes. Um, and um, I don't know, I'll, I'll always have immense amount of respect for them. Um, and seeing that kind of just, they come off as pretty endearing. Um, and if you, you can go on MTV and watch the concert for, or watch the, um, the, you know, the whole, the whole special that it was. Um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Matt Penfield, I think uh, was there. Um, so so yeah, it's it, it's it's pretty cool. So uh, check it out. Yeah, and this guy, um, you know, got to got to have his own Metallica concert with his friends. So kick ass, um, hell of a day. Yeah, yeah a day. definitely. And then the other folks got cool stuff. You know, I think the Jeep might have gone to like somebody else, and then other people just got a bunch of Metallica gear and stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, they open up the semi. Boom, there's Metallica inside of it. <laughs> it's cool yeah mtv mtv did um such kick-ass contests you know like that like that one where like the guy won the party with van halen in 1984 like i mean there's just like all these awesome <laughs> M- M- gosh yeah that's that's another episode um you know uh but yeah, yeah. mtv turned 40 this year yeah thanks for thanks for the, the the 15 years of music that you gave us for those 40 years <laughs> yeah, right. now, now it's it's marathons of ridiculousness and, and, and teen mom yeah so yep. yeah went from van halen contests to teen mom marathons great <laughs> digging your own grave there MTV. well yeah man um i'll start my next one and we'll stick in the 80s um i was going to talk real quick a little bit about huey lewis which a lot of people may not realize is a a bay area guy Mm -hmm. and so um you know he he traveled and busked playing harmonica all over the united states and europe before kind of settling down and um he came back to the u.s and went to college at cornell but then ended up dropping out because he wanted to do music and so from there, he went to San Francisco and he started playing in a band that he hooked up with named Clover. And they were kind of just like a 
not light rock, not hard rock. They're just kind of a rock band mm -hmm. <laughs> in the most moderate term. And so they were playing a gig in LA in which Nick Lowe discovered them. And so he got them signed up to a record deal. They came out with two records, which I have one and it's, it's all right. You know what I mean? It's nothing fantastic, but they obviously weren't successful, but, um, it kind of got his foot in the door in the whole music scene in which he plays harmonica on the Thin Lizzy Alive and Dangerous record. Cause I guess they Clover and Thin Lizzy toured together during that era. And so um, he came out with a, a Huey Lewis and the news record in I think 80, 81, and it did all right. And so that got them going enough to where they had their second album in 82, and it was called Picture This, which had a couple radio hits. Uh, the biggest one was Do You Believe in Love? And so in 1983, they hooked up with, I believe it was Mutt Lang who produced that one. And so their biggest album, everybody knows, is called Sports, which is just a great name for a record, and the, the cover's great. But uh, Heart and Soul, I Want a New Drug, The Heart of Rock and Roll, If This Is It, were all just huge, huge songs off of the uh, album. Yeah, like two-thirds of the record are singles, you know. Yeah, yeah it, it's one of those records. Yeah, yeah. and um, he also... Uh, at the time kind of started producing. So he produced some songs for Bruce Hornsby in around 84, 85, 86. And uh, then his album kind of a follow-up after sports, it didn't do as well, obviously, but it's called four F O R E keeping with the sports theme. Uh, it had some radio hits on it, like stuck with you hip to be square and Jacob's ladder. And so yeah, I, you know, everybody's heard, I think, of Huey Lewis in the news, but I don't think many people associate him with the Bay Area. You know, I'd like to make a list of like the best harmonica players in rock, right? Right. I, I probably put him up there, you know? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, I would, you know? I mean, oh, yeah, um, the guy could blow a harp for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if he's like Steve Marriott or anything, but um, yeah, man. Oh, fuck, maybe he is. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We'd have to have we Lee Oscar. We gotta do a harmonica episode, yeah. guys. We'd have to do <laughs> Lee Oscar from War on that list. As yeah, well. yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, good stuff, man. Um, I uh, remember my dad getting um, getting sports on vinyl and listening to the hell out of it. I think we bought that at probably JR's Music in the mall. Um, in uh, <laughs> sports come out in '83, something like that. '82 or '83. Uh, what? Sports, 83. Yeah, 83. Say 84 83. came out in 86. So he must okay. have been touring quite a bit on sports. Yeah, like we, oh, yeah. Because, like, if it was 83, I probably wouldn't remember, but I remember getting sports. So maybe my dad didn't get it until like 84 or 85, but I, I do remember him bringing it home and us listening to it. Um, yeah, it was one of those albums where they just kept releasing singles and videos. They could they could milk it, you know, like you could get you could yeah. get like a two and a half, three year run out of a hit record, you know. John, John John's like, damn it, all right, I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> 18 right. months in. Right, right. <laughs> it got me. Um but yeah, man, good uh good stuff. Um it's it's it is a, it's really fun to listen to. Um I did the whole catalog front to back, and I'd never really spun a Huey Lewis record before and and uh the dude he sticks to it he stays in his lane um yeah 
and with all due respect, you know, as a musician and, and like he, he, he knows what he does well and he executes it and it's just really solid throughout, um, his, his, uh, entire catalog. Well, yeah, it's not super extensive by any means, his catalog, but like, you know, their albums are solid, especially the hit records, but like, yeah. Yeah. It's a fun listen. As a veteran artist, he probably knows like, well, pre-COVID at least that the money's on the road. You know what I mean as well? I'm I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 Not not to say Huey doesn't have some good songs in him still, but you know, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, well, unfortunately, due to hearing loss, uh, he can't tour or play oh, or really? write anymore. He just oh, came my. out with the last record, uh, and I mean, they were billing it Huey Lewis's last record in, mm. in, in reviews and stuff. Because, yeah, I guess his hearing loss has has gotten so bad. Bummer. We're your earplugs, kids. Yeah did uh, did you did you and Betsy uh, in preparation for this episode watch uh, duets? With uh, Huey Lewis and Gwyn- Gwyneth Paltrow, Jonathan. We're watching it this weekend. Uh, you're right. Criterion yeah. Collection. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I hear he's the one who gave her the idea for Goop. Uh, <laughs> right. That well, was going to, that, 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 that's actually a long lost record of his from, <laughs> like, from in between 83 and 86. He's never released it. It's called Goop. And uh, she heard it and she yeah, was inspired. He loved the title. Yeah. 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 I also think the Bay Area um, is an important hip hop region as well. Um, a lot of people wouldn't disagree with that. In the late 80s, um, mid to late 80s, uh, the, the West Coast sound really started to emerge. And even though um, I think LA uh, probably has maybe more quantity of hip hop, um, coming out uh, at this time, I th- uh, up until the early 90s too. I think um, the quality of the Bay Area stuff, I think overall is, um, well, it, it's, it's, I don't know, better, but um, I, I appreciate it more. Let's just say that. I, I think one of the main reasons um, I like Bay Area rap so much is because there was a really heavy G-Funk presence. So, um, even though the G-Funk movement started in, um, in LA, um, it uh, rose to prominence with a lot of Oakland rappers, particularly Too Short and E-40. So um, G-Funk, right? Um, you guys probably remember this, right? Even if you weren't following hip hop too closely at the time. Um, early 90s, a lot of guys are really paying heavy homage to Parliament, Funkadelic. Right. Sure. Um, Dre, Dr. Dre in particular, right? Even though he's not a Bay Area guy. Um, and, and Too Short was doing that as well by sampling a lot of, um, a lot of Parliament stuff in, in his music. So I think one of the reasons I, I'm so drawn to Oakland rap, um, and there are some San Francisco cats too, but I think a lot of it was coming out, more, more of it was coming out of Oakland, is I think there's a lot of 70s influence on the sound. And, um, you know, they paid a, a lot of um, a lot of respect to kind of the funk and soul forefathers that came before them. Um, so I always appreciated that. And I, I, I felt like East Coast rap didn't necessarily have um, it was different. Um, but I, I, I felt like a lot of the music, I mean, anything from the 70s, I pretty much dig it. 
and, right. and that's, it that seems sound, like the East yeah. Coast relied a lot on more of like jazz samples and mm-hmm. stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the West Coast relied on more funk and soul. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I'm just going to kind of run through some of the big names, you know, from um, from the um, uh, the Bay Area. And I'll maybe do a kind of a little bit of a Bay Area Mount, Mount Rushmore, if you will. Um, you know, I, I also think, I think this is worth mentioning. I always hear in some of the Bay Area stuff, them, um, maybe it's like the hippie crowd um, intermingling with a hip hop crowd. But I, I, I hear rappers calling weed dank and skunk which are totally hippie terms, right? <laughs> Those are like hippie terms for weed, you know? Yeah. Um, so I never, I never heard that like on East Coast rap, you know, or rap from the Midwest, what? really. Um, you hear that a lot on um, one of my favorite records. Uh, I guess I'll start here. Um, um, well, of this genre, or I guess is any genre. It's just a fantastic album. Um, Rappin' Forte, that's Anthony Forte. Um, he put out a record in 94 called Don't Fight the Feeling, which comes from a two short song that he sang on a few years earlier, right? Um, I think there's a positivity that's kind of an undercurrent in many of his tunes, despite, you know, some of the harsher elements of life he's talking about. Um, There's always just this sort of optimism in his tunes that I really like. And he's a G-Funk devotee as well. Um, uh, You may have heard about him in the news um, a few years ago. uh, Drake, the very um, famous rapper of now, Canadian rapper Drake, ripped off one of Forte's lines. So oh, no. for, Forte, Forte yeah. sued him um, and, and won, I guess. They settled. Um, so, uh, you know, um, Champagne Pappy got sued there. So, um, so yeah, but uh, Don't Fight the Feeling is a great record. And then his, um, his follow-up, Off Parole, is really good as well. Um, so both of those albums are, are great. Um, so Rappin' Forte goes on my, uh, my Mount Rushmore. He's a San Francisco guy, actually. Um, so, and, you know, you'll, um, you, you'll hear him, um, drop a lot of San Francisco references and street names and things like that on those records. Sure. Um, so yeah, he's a, he's a San Fran guy. Um, I, you know, uh, probably he's not the, he's not the, I mean, Hammer is probably the most commercially successful, at least over a short, over a period of time, shorter period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, rapper to emerge from the Bay Area. Um, Hammer, you know, um, obviously figured out some formula and it really worked there for a couple, a couple records. Um, so I respect Hammer a lot. Um, and he's kind of just a fascinating story himself, former Oakland A's bat boy. Um, <laughs> Hammer, yes. Um, I, I'm not going to put him on the Mount Rushmore just because, you know, just the, you know, I, breakthrough commercial hits but the catalog just isn't as expansive as these other guys that i'm mentioning you know um so with all due respect i want to i want to put hammer as an honorable mention um he's important but um i don't think he quite has the repertoire as someone like too short um that's really raps poet of sleaze um (laughs) you know i i it's tough with too short because i always like always feel like I have to give some type of disclaimer when I say I like him, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's not to say like he doesn't have, he's not respected or, you know, musically he is. And he, I think he's probably one of the best 
his music has some of the best samples in it I've ever heard. It's funky and you know, he's he's hasn't changed his style all that dramatically. It's got some updates, but even his newer stuff still kind of has a 70s kind of groove to it. Um, but you know, too short is uh too short's not afraid to go blue. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um and he's a guy to me, you know, among all these people I'm gonna mention, I mean, I think Too Short should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, you know, I mean, he's been putting out albums since 89. Um, he's sold a shitload of records. Um, really his work, or actually, I'm sorry, 89. His first album came out in 87. His first full-length record, first LP came out in 87. <laughs> so his work from like 87 to 95 is just as good as anybody else's, you know. Um, so a nearly a 10 year run of, of great LPs. So the dude's got my vote. If I were a rock and roll hall of fame, you know, um, writer or whoever the hell nominates those. Why aren't you actually, yeah. why don't you have a vote? I don't know. I don't know. I <laughs> um, just representing the too short Molly hatchet contingency, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I run the gamut too much, Gets. They couldn't handle me, <laughs> all right? Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, Too Short as well. Um, you know, great, great records um, um, all around. So uh, another dude, uh, a guy I like a lot um, is Drew Down. I think he's pretty underrated. Um, he, uh, his debut album from, I think it's 96, is I think one of the that that era's best records, um, that era of 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 hip hop. So yeah, check out um, check out Drew Down's um, first album. Um, that's uh, it's a great one as well. And he is uh, I believe he is an, he's an Oakland guy. Yeah, so um, so I, I he's still around. You know, he still does some stuff, but um, his. Um, his uh his 96 album can you feel me is is fantastic so um check out him um and then um the other uh, you know I, the other guy it's the last one's pretty obvious although this is kind of weird you know, we talked about in this episode people that are from the bay area but i don't think you commonly associate them with the bay area i don't know how many people like necessarily associate tupac with the bay area even though most of his um you know, his, uh, he, he spent a considerable amount of time in, in the Bay area. Um, and, and maybe it's because like, he, he kind of moved around so much, like as a kid, like, you know, he, you know, he was, he, he lived in, I think he lived in Baltimore for a little while. And then he was, he, he kind of was all over, you know, cause he went to art school for a little bit. Um, and, you know, and then he hooked up with digital underground when he goes, when he goes to the Bay area, um, and, you know, he spent much of his brief adult life there. Um, he hung with so many people that were from L.A. and Compton. And also he was, you know, he was, he, in addition to being a rapper, he was a celebrity, you know, as well. So, you know, he was in movies and shit. So, I mean, I think people, you know, maybe you just kind of even associate him sometimes with Hollywood. Um, I think most people would say, though, you know, that, that don't know is that he's from, you know, oh, he's from Compton or he's from L.A. Sure. But no, yeah. uh, most of most of Tupac's, um, you know, kind of, if you will, kind of formative years as an artist were spent in the Bay Area. And it's it's just it's interesting that a guy that's so associated with, um, um, you know, um, 
I, I don't really like to call it gangster rap, but you know, I guess that's what it'll get labeled that like really hooked up with like all the weirdos that were digital underground, you know? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, it's just digital underground, such a motley crew of dudes and they're weird, you know? I, I mean, one of the bands from the Bay area that we were, that we were talking about, um, uh, well, I, I inducted them into our chew-ins, the tubes, I think digital underground's like the tubes of rap, you know what I mean? Like to me. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's interesting how he hooked up those dudes because he was born in Harlem and then, you know, made his way. Then, like I said, he was in Baltimore for a while and then relocated to the Bay area in the late eighties. So, um, so yeah, you know, it, I, Tupac obviously, um, goes on, uh, goes on the Mount Rushmore of Bay area rap. So yeah, that's that's uh I'm gonna go with uh Too Short, Tupac, Drew Down, and Rappin' Forte as uh as my um my Mount Rushmore. Um some other great people, uh E40, you know, that's kind of a veteran dude who's uh maintained his clout, kind of like too short and has the respect of a lot of younger rappers. Um, you know, he's kind of still relevant to the scene as well um you know he's he he like appears on popular rappers albums and things like that still um you know he kind of experienced a bit of a resurgence in the mid-aughts with some hit singles um and then another dude named mac dre he's in that uh he's in that super group that just started right he is yeah right it's like snoop too short e40 and um ice is ice cube in it i think he is ice cube yeah yeah so Yeah. yeah yeah that's um some titans there um so so yeah e40 is in that group so yeah he's one of those guys like you know your your average hip-hop fan that whose knowledge doesn't run that deep may not may not necessarily know e40 but like he's like a rapper's rapper you know what i mean one of those dudes um all the all the rappers um certainly i think um he has a lot of clout um cool yeah, so you know, and there's another guy named Mac Dre who um, I, I I started getting into lately. I mean, I always heard the name. Um, his early '90s work is really strong. Um, you know, he went to the joint for a while, came back, you know, with his his integrity intact, and was cranking out some really strong LPs into the early 2000s. And then um, I, I didn't get a chance to read it for this article, but there's a big long form piece um, about his his death. I guess there was some kind of you know, sort of um, mysterious circumstances surrounding it. So, um, but yeah, he's, he's great. So um, yeah. So those a uh, little bit of a, an overview of barrier Bay area rap really um, kind of the, the golden era from uh, you know, late eighties to mid nineties um, all, all great stuff. Right on. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to uh, give some of those a spin. Um, yes. I, I, I did enjoy listening to digital underground. That was, um, uh, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're, yeah. They're, it, it, interesting that those, you know, it's just, obviously they had really catchy tunes, um, but it's, uh, it was cool that those guys broke through and they were always kind of weirdos and mm-hmm. kind of had this outcast, not outcast the rap group, but outcast is in the definition of the word yeah. vibe to them um, that I thought was, uh, I thought was pretty cool. Uh, There's nobody else like them, you know? And rest in peace, Shock G. He died earlier this year. So. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Well, guys, you know, it's been a it's been a nice journey through uh, through the Bay Area music scene. 
and baseball history tonight. It's so rich to go back to the gold rush theme. It's so rich. Absolutely. Absolutely. Want to remind everybody, um, you can find all of um, the episodes uh, of Rock and Roll Shinsuchu at rockchu.com. So you can find the whole archives there. You can listen to the Grateful Dead episode uh, if you want to get that type of fix of the Bay Area. Um, you can check out that there. So yeah, all of our episodes are there. Also, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at rockinchu. That's the letter N in between the rock and the chew, like Rob Nen. You guys remember that guy? Rob Nen. Oh, yeah. Nobody? Nothing? Yeah. He, anyway. What team was he on? He played for the Giants. He led the he led the NL in saves in 2001 on the Giants. Right. Wow. Two, two, two Bs. Yeah. 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 Rob with yeah. two Bs. Yeah. Right. Rob with two Bs. Three-time All-Star. Um, yeah. Pre- pretty good. Pretty good career. You know, like um, he was he was a he was a closer. Um, so yeah, yeah, pretty pretty good numbers um on on Rob Nin with two Bs. Yes. Rob Nin. Like like Rob yeah. Roy, right? Uh yeah. Finished Rob fourth Nin. in the Cy Young voting in 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good years there. He was uh Rob Nin was Zen during those years. Um, but anyway, so um yeah, check us out there uh on the Twitter and the Instagram at Rock In Chew. You can like us on Facebook, uh share with your friends, and uh we will see you again soon. Take care. Peace.